public transport shouldn't always be seen as a cost. It's an investment. It's more than getting people from A to B. Welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast. I'm Christian Warmer, an author and journalist who has covered transport for the past 30 years. In every episode, we try to keep you up to date with the most engaging news stories, policy developments and interviews in the transport world. And with me is my regular co-presenter, Mark Walker, who has spent decades looking at transport policies and legislation. So, Mark, what are we covering today? Hello, Christian, and hello to our listeners. This week, you have an interview with Jason Prince, who is the new director of the Urban Transport Group, which, as we'll hear, brings together the city regions and devolved administrations of the UK dealing with transport policy and strategies. We'll also have a close look at the publication this week by the UK government of the draft rail reform bill and what that means for the future shape of the rail industry in Great Britain. And then finally, you'll be having a look at the new names that have been issued for London's overground lines. Yes, and controversial uh, uh, they inevitably have been. Uh, but, uh, Mark, let's start with uh, the Rail Reform Bill. And you've been taking quite a, a careful look at this. Uh, and uh, I just wonder what, what your thoughts are about it and, uh, you know, what, what the key features are. I suppose I, I'm one of those possibly sad people that feels I've been immersed in this story of rail reform really since 2018, when Keith Williams was first appointed by the then UK Transport Secretary uh, Chris Grayling to undertake a review of the structure and finances of the rail industry in Great Britain. Uh, through the publication in 2021 of the William Shapps Plan for Rail, so that took its name from Keith Williams and from the Transport Secretary of the time, Grant Shapps, and then all of the twists and turns that we've seen since that time leading up to the publication on the 20th of February of the draft rail reform bill. And I know you've studied this closely as well, Christian. And, and we I'll were together about it in uh, Rail Magazine. Absolutely. And we were together at the, uh, the George Bradshaw Address, which had been coincidentally or, or, or in a synchronised way, happened to be on the 20th of February, the, uh, the same day that the, uh, the the draft bill and its explanatory notes were published. And there, the current rail minister, Hugh Merriman, was giving some of the, the headlines, which are essentially, I, I think if we were to, to look at the headlines, so this draft bill is not actually a piece of legislation. It's a, a as, the, as the name implies, it's something which has been issued in draft, which will be considered in detail by the House of Commons Transport Committee, and the committee will be issuing shortly, we believe, a call for evidence for any interested party who's had a look at the bill to make their further representations on how they think it could be amended or improved. And this is before it's ever placed in either House of Parliament for formal and, and detailed consideration. And the really striking feature about the bill is that if, if we go back to the William Shapps Plan for Rail of 2021, the proposal, the central proposal, was to set up a new organisation called Great British Railways, 
The, the document itself was called Great British Railways. And this new organisation would have firstly absorbed into it the network rail organisation, and then it would have taken over from the Department for Transport the responsibility for franchising passenger rail services, uh, principally those that operate in England outside of, uh, of certain specified exceptions. Um, the different proposal that came forward uh, that we saw on Tuesday was that instead of Great British Railways being a new organisation, there will be something set up called an integrated rail body and that integrated rail body will be network rail. So, so network rail itself, it pretty much unchanged, unreformed, will be given the new responsibilities um, over to become the guiding mind for the rail industry. How do and we to know the contracts? How do we know that this is going to be network rail? Because it's explicitly stated. Right. in the explanatory notes to the um to the draft rail reform bill so there are there are a number of pages of the bill itself which is written in the kind of legalese that you would expect for a, a piece of legislation but then there are pages and pages of explanatory notes and and the key point that leaps out uh, from there is that the integrated rail body uh, will be network rail which will be designated as such uh, so does GBR figure in this at all? The Great well, British Railways. Uh, that's a really good question because in in none of these documents does the term Great British Railways appear, but kind of nor would you expect it to because of some strange conventions around the way Parliament deals with legislation. But in the uh, the spin in the press release that was issued by the Department for Transport and in the statement by the Secretary of State, the term Great British Railways survives. So it would appear that we have a, a three stage process whereby Parliament agrees to set up something called an integrated rail body. The Secretary of State then appoints Network Rail as the integrated rail body and issues it a, a license to operate in that role. And then it network rail changes its name to great British railways. So they sort of, they, they change the, the letterhead and the, and, and the, and the plaques on the doors for it to become great British railways. I hope that makes some sense to you. That, that, I think that's wonderfully <laughs> clear, Mark, for something that is, totally unclear and it, it's kind of completely confusing and i'm sure our listeners will be very grateful for for that uh explanation so uh what basically happens next with this so the, the house of commons transport committee which is chaired by the experienced and accomplished uh, member of parliament ian stewart who of course you gave evidence to uh last year in connection with the autonomous vehicles inquiry so listeners will have heard ian's voice on this uh, podcast previously um that that committee will issue a call for evidence um and invite interested parties which could be uh, organizations businesses lobby groups local authorities trade associations and potentially individuals i guess to make their representations on how the bill uh, could be improved or amended 
and, and then we believe they will hold some hearings. Uh, so they'll actually call selected people to come in and be interviewed by the committee. And the committee will then make some recommendations to the government and the government will then, as is the usual practice with these kind of things, uh, respond and say whether they accept or re reject the recommendations. And then the idea is normally that uh, the government will then come forward with an actual bill which has been informed by this process of pre-legislative scrutiny. However, of course, we're in the last year of the parliament, uh, which is running, the clock is running down fast on the parliament of 2019. So whether we'll actually see a real rail reform bill before the general election is an open question. As I understand it, it's very, very unlikely to uh, pass into legislation uh, simply because there's run out of time. And also, I don't really think there's the will in government to uh, uh, push this through. I mean, they could have, you know, this, uh, somebody very senior in the industry told me that this bill has actually been around pretty much in its current form since December 2022. And uh, yet they've sat on it in the Department of Transport. Been very little change. I understand the one change that has been, uh, has been an addition about the private sector uh, having a, the, the, the basic, the ministers having the obligation to basically report on how much the private sector has been involved in the industry in the past year or something like that. But uh, essentially, it's been unchanged for more than a year um, and yet sat somewhere in uh, Whitehall. Yes, and, and I think as we've discussed in previous episodes of the podcast, that may be because it's simply been overtaken by events. And the original Williams Review, which was set up nearly six years ago now, was designed to uh, address the problems of timetable planning uh, after a catastrophic summer in, in 2018, when there have been all sorts of delays and cancellations, principally in the north of England, but also in in parts of the southeast of England as well, which had caused absolute consternation to passengers and political leaders and, and, and representatives. Um, and of course, the railways of Great Britain face a very different problem now, which is post-pandemic recovery. Um, and, the, and there is a, a, a really an open question, and hopefully this is something the Select Committee will look closely at, as to whether these suggested reforms are actually relevant to the railway of 2024 um, rather than the railway of 2018. And, and I think another question they'll ask, Christian, is the extraordinary amount of expenditure that there has already been on this process and is expected to be before it's completed. Now, you know, there is an eye-watering figure in the explanatory notes of 381 million pounds, I'll say that again, 381 million pounds for the cost of this reform process. And with the best will in the world, assuming we're kind of halfway through it and perhaps half the money has been spent so far, I think listeners would probably agree there's very little to see for it so far. And that we could have bought 
quite a lot of sort of improved accessibility to stations or perhaps a few miles of electrification <laughs> or some Right. better Wi-Fi from £381 million pounds. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. And uh, I, I think I understand that there's a National Audit uh, Office report in the offing, which has looked at this and uh, has sent shockwaves through the Department for Transport, because uh, as with convention, they've sent draft copies of it. And we're expecting that in, in, uh, in March. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that uh, on uh, this podcast. So two things remain to be discussed, I think. One is uh i understand that uh there is some worry in the industry about network rail being in charge because network rail is essentially a supplier to the train operators and yet it's also going to be at top of this organization so that's one thing I'd, I'd like to hear from you and the final thing of course is um what will labor do about it well on your your first point i think that is possibly the fundamental flaw at the heart of these proposals in that the objective back in 2018 was for somebody to take charge, somebody to be the guiding mind so that we didn't have uh, a repetition of the timetabling crisis. But six years on, um, I think many in the industry would argue that what we need is commercial initiative from operators to market and pr promote services. Essentially, to sell more tickets on train passenger trains or sell more space for boxes on on freight trains and those are the commercial imperatives so and 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 the analogy i would draw is under the the proposals that we have in front of us at the moment it's effectively if you take a slightly different transport mode it's like saying that you would put the highways authority in charge of running bus and lorry services Now, nobody in their right mind would do something like that. I appreciate the railways do have a high level of integration, interface between the vehicles that move on them and the fixed infrastructure. But it seems to me a, a questionable policy that you would put the, uh, the infrastructure authority in charge of the overall industry. And that then leads into your second question, Christian, which is what will Labour do We didn't get a lot of illumination at the George Bradshaw address on Tuesday beyond the existing commitments to have the passenger train operators return to the public sector at the end of their contracts and to have some kind of guiding mind. But what we did hear from the Shadow Rail Minister Stephen Morgan MP was an indication that Labour will be setting out a more detailed policy shortly. And I'm sure we'll be returning to that on calling all stations when it's available. Uh, definitely. I mean, he actually said in due course, which is um, he's obviously practising to be a minister. Practising for that's being what, a minister. Because that's, yeah, right. yeah. that's what yeah. they always say, in yeah. due course. Um, uh, OK, well, that's a wonderful uh, uh, a summary of, of uh, uh, this uh, amazing six year process uh, so far. Um, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it when it gets to the Transport Select Committee. The Urban Transport Group is the UK's network of transport authorities. And the UTG has a new director, Jason Prince. Christian spent some time with Jason recently, looking at the work of the UTG and his and their ambitions for the future. 
Um, I'm uh, joined by uh, Jason Prince, who's the new director of the Urban Transport Group, to talk about uh, what, how he thinks that the situation in our towns and cities uh, can improve, be improved, and indeed what we can expect from uh, what will probably be a new Labour government. So, Jason, congratulations on uh, getting this job. Um, I did interview your predecessor, Jonathan Bray, as a sort of exit uh, interview uh, a couple of months ago. So I'm very keen to hear, well, first of all, a bit about your background, but then obviously about uh, plans for the urban transport group. So so let's start off. What's your, what's your urban transport experience, as it were? Well, firstly, thank you for having me on, Christian. Uh, great podcast. And uh, I feel I'm lucky to be in an esteemed, hopefully, uh, esteemed group of people who've appeared on the on the show. So uh, so uh, if people don't know me, uh, Jason Prince, I'm the new director. I don't think I can say new, actually, now. I've been here over seven months. Right. The new director of Urban Transport Group and uh, picking up the mantle from Jonathan Bray, which I'm sure many listeners will know about. Uh, what's my background? So uh, before this, I worked within Greater Manchester, uh, the arguably the capital city of the United Kingdom, but that's what we all We won't go there. Say. We won't go there. <laughs> I have uh, listeners from Birmingham as well. So, you know, <laughs> uh, so I, I live in Greater Manchester. I'm from Greater Manchester. And I worked both at the Combined Authority and then at Transport for Greater Manchester for about seven to eight years. And then before that, I, I worked in Parliament. And then before that, really varied career, uh, initially trained as an engineer, which you could argue is both a positive when uh, working in transport, but also a negative. And I I think when I joined the job and I've said to the team, I am a bit of a transport geek as well, which I think does Good. help in some ways. It we need some transport some. geeks in this world. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, what's your what, what's your your plans, or what? How have you found uh, the situation? Obviously, we we are in a very fluid political situation. Um, but so, uh, you know, how have you found it? I mean, there's been some uh, fairly major developments uh, since you've taken up the job, such as the scrapping of the sections of uh, HS2, and uh, I think a, a kind of somewhat reversal of the policy of uh, sustainable transport with. Mm. Uh, the Tories kind of saying there's a war on motorists and we have to reverse that. So, so how have you found the situation? Do you know what I, I, I'm quite optimistic about where we are, and I'm quite clear about where UTG can go next. And for those who don't know, UTG we're a membership organisation. We have 14 members, and our members represent about 30 million people. Uh, and our big members include TfL, uh, Greater Manchester, West Yorkshire, etc. And we are in a unique year. There's going to be a number of key events happening this year. In uh, a month or so, a couple of months, there's going to be some mayoral elections, uh, which I think will be uh, looked at very closely in terms of how parties perform. But then, obviously, there's a, a big general election uh, coming up, which has been confirmed by the PM, I believe, to happen this year. For me, when you look at transport, it's there's clearly been some challenges for the sector, particularly after the pandemic and recovering from what was a very a really difficult period for all parties, for operators, for local transport authorities, etc. 
So there's been a, a really challenging period about where we move forward. I think for me at UTG, what I want to bring to this role, and I think what we need to look at going forward is ultimately what does a sustainably funded public transport system look like? I think that is, I would hope, a, and that's a question we're asking from all parties. We go to all party conferences, as most organisations do, and we need to start to get people to think about what does that look like. But and important... sustainable is a key word for you, is it? Sustainable, not just in terms of financially sustainable, but also in terms of meeting our green agenda, because transport is one of the, I think it is, the largest contribution to uh, carbon. And we need to think about what does that look like? How do we meet both a green transport system, which is accessible, is affordable, is trusted, but also is financially deliverable for both LTAs and for operators. And I think L for me, LTAs, it's quite, LTAs? Uh, local transport authorities right. and, and for, for operators. So I'm going already into the acronyms. Yeah. Uh, which we all use in transport. We love acronyms, as you know. But also for operators, because one big thing for me is that we need operators and we need to work with operators to deliver good public transport. So I think in this big year ahead, we have to start to have a think about what does a sustainably funded transport system look like? How can we restore trust back into public transport? How do we make it affordable and green? So there's some challenges but I think there are some opportunities and there's there's probably some learning and some positives that we can take forward from what the government has done probably over the last two, three, four years. OK, so so maybe uh, uh, tell me what those are, because there's also there's quite a lot of uh, negativity around uh, some of the things that happen. So what, what are the what are the positives here? So I think some of the, the positives and these are. I, I always get the acronym wrong, so I'll just say the full long-winded title. But when you look at City Region Sustainable Transport Fund, I think that's a that is beginning to turn out into a really good mechanism where our members can start to plan beyond five-year cycles for what transport can look like in their area. And I think that's been a game changer, actually. Now it is all capital, admittedly, and we would like to see more movement on matching that longer term sustainably funding on revenue but when you've got our big urban areas like gm and west mids etc having a longer financial envelope which you can start to look towards gives greater clarity and and a better ability to plan so i think the city region sustainable transport fund which i think was on the back of transforming cities fund it was the natural evolution of that is a positive I think also what is one thing the government, to be fair to their credit, has done as well, and I say this in the absence of there being an overall sort of national transport strategy, and I, I presented evidence at the Select Committee on that recently, is that they have clearly put transport as one of those areas which is uh, a core plank of the devolution offer. So, and over the past couple of years, particularly, You've seen uh, the discussion and greater powers uh, being offered to local areas. And then and we've ended up where we are now with uh, Greater Manchester and West Midlands being trailblazers and lots of different, uh, slightly different in terms of how transport is delivered. 
and make up. Obviously, Greater Manchester is going down the franchising route for buses. West Mids is enhanced partnership. But overall, there's been a movement of taking power and delivering it to locally elected mayors, working with their local authorities for the betterment of local transport. And I think with the B network is a really good example of when you do start to hand down those powers, what you can achieve. So I think city regions in terms of long term, city region sustainable transport fund in terms of longer term certainty of a capital and then uh, devolution. I think there's some positives that we can we should rightly acknowledge what the government has done in helping uh, improve transport in local areas. Okay, but I mean, we've still seen a reduction in the number of uh, bus routes by, I think, about 50% in 2010. And it was telling, I was watching a, a, a Newsnight item on the, what it what used to be Orgreave, the area where they've now built a kind of new tech centre. And uh, the apprentices were having great difficulty getting into that tech centre because uh, there weren't enough buses. And so some poor lad had to kind of arrive there at seven o'clock in the morning because he didn't start work till eight, but there was no suitable bus service. So, I mean, when you say, yes, there's a quite capital going into uh, schemes, but don't we need a lot of operating money? And who's where's that going to come from? It's shocking to see the scale of bus service cuts which have happened over the past 10 years. I think... Uh, God, I might get my stats wrong. I think about there's been 6,000 cuts since 2012, I believe, or something like that. It's it's a huge magnitude. I use buses. My husband uses buses every day to get to work. They are a core fundamental of our transport network. But you are right. And I think what we would want to see, hopefully, from the days of this government and any future government, uh, we need it as well as as rightly you said as well as it's good to have longer term certainty over where capital goes. Funding for buses falls off a cliff effectively after March twenty five. So how can you number one as a transport authority begin to think about what a bus network is like, and also as an operator and provider, well where's your investable proposition when you can't you don't you don't have an authority which is hard to doesn't have certainty over funding and an operator where in a couple of years time there isn't greater certainty over where the money's going to come from and i think that's where i would that's where i come back about we almost need to have a new discussion a new debate about how do you look in the long term about funding public transport eventually public transport shouldn't always be seen as a cost it's an investment it's more than getting people from a to b it's about as you said helping those people get to work, get to college. It's got to be seen in a different light. And I'm, I do think that we've probably lost a little bit, both as authorities, both as operators. I think we've almost lost about how we need to talk about why public transport matters. And in the next couple of months, UTG will be releasing some work where we put front and centre why public transport matters and what it contributes to making places, what it contributes to the economy, what it contributes to meeting lots of those broader outcomes for society, basically. And okay, maybe you can give some examples of that, what you're, what you're doing in relation to that, because I, I think, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. That's the absolute core issue. But we've had a trend 
really since the mid 80s where uh, bus use you know since deregulation and and uh, privatization where bus use has been declining apart from of course in london where where it's held up because we have a very different regime here um so what what sort of things are you going to be trying to say to government and this will probably be the new government that will convince them that uh buses are important I think so. First off, we have to we we can't disguise the fact that a pound spent on buses four pound fifty back in terms of return. I mean, if you want an economic multiplier, then there's one straight away bang in front of you. And in what so way? How that, do you get that four pound fifty back? Then how does that work? Well, I think it's it's four pound fifty back in terms of economic benefit. It's about the accessibility and moving people around. So I think that's really important. But on your point about how do we get buses? How do we them the decline of buses and how do we put them front and centre? I think there is something that we all need to do, whether operators or transport authorities, again, about telling that story. And we released a report earlier this year about some things you can do to the 27 Bus 17 Act, which I worked on when I first joined TFGM, how you can, uh, some things, very simple things like make franchising available to all rather than having to get SOS, the Secretary of State, to sign off. Uh, strengthen the enhanced partnership regime. Uh, there's, so there's some there's quite easy levers to be done. But I think there's also something which we also I spoke about at the Transport Select Committee, actually, about this rigmarole that areas have to go through about competitive funding. I mean, when we look at... So trans- perhaps you could explain that. What does that mean? So areas have to go for competitive funding bids. You have to put bids in for BSIP and all of these different things. And when some areas don't get it, it's pretty demoralising, basically. And there has to be a better way where we have to try and work with our areas to help the money get to the local areas and the operators so that we can start to deliver services. And I think there's... so. Look, we're going you're to be saying there should be work. a pot of money rather than a yeah. pot of money available to for everyone, rather than having to go into these uh, competitions against one another. Exactly, and I think this is where coming back to my point earlier on. Exactly, I think where we have to give credit to some progress what government has done through the Trailblazer agreements with Greater Manchester and and the West Mids. They're working towards single pot settlement uh, for their local area. What what does so, that mean? Single pot settlements, basically, uh, rather than having lots of different funding pots which you have to bid into to deliver particular types of service. This isn't just transport, it's across the gambit. Here's a pot of money, your elected officials, you're the mayor, working with your combined authority area. You go and spend it as you see fit, delivering against a particular plan. That's it in in an overall, it's removing some of that competitive process where you have to go for this pot of funding here, levelling up there, future high streets there, uh, BSIP here, city regions there, uh, uh, bus services improvement grant. So, see, I'm doing it again. I'm going (laughs) down that rabbit hole of of acronyms. So I think think there is is movement and there is a general direction recognised in government and I think that will govern that devolution is leading the way in, I believe, and you've seen this in London. Look what London's, uh, look at how London works and how they've got an integrated transport system. I think this year TFL turned, I think it was the first time uh, they've turned an operating profit first time this year, I think. So 
if you look at London as what they can achieve, why should that be just for London? Let's start to think about that for our for our other areas, the other cities, the other great cities within the UK. And moving towards single pot settlements is a is a good way to start that process, I believe. Okay, so moving away from buses, um, what one of the other aspects uh, that you see is important because you, you know when when I do go outside London, it's very it's very kind of clear that you know people lots of people just use their cars automatically, particularly you know much less so in London, but much more so uh, outside uh, the capital, even in some of the big cities. So. Uh, you know, should you be doing stuff for the motorists or uh, should you just be encouraging a move away from motorists? That's a good question. I mean, look, I drive a car. I, I, I use the car every week and I usually use the car either to maybe nip to the shops or to go out and do some hiking at the weekend and things like that. So I am a car driver and I think it's important to say that. And I think also that's part of the issue sometimes. We, we can be binary about you either are a car driver and you don't use public transport or you're a public transport user and is completely against the power where actually most people will do a combination of both. I think out of London, and I've worked in London because I lived in London in the late 90s, early noughties, and I've then uh, worked in London since then. I think some of the key things which are starkly different to London and out of London is the fact that the integration of public transport is arguably very difficult and non-existent in some areas out of London than it is. And if you're going to put, if, if, if there are barriers to how people can move in an integrated way, where it could be a, a bus and a tram, I get to work, I live in Manchester, work in Leeds, I get a tram and I get a train, or sometimes I'll get a bus and I'll jump on a train. So, it's not one mode. It can be a different set of modes, or it could be driving to a park and ride and jumping on a bus. But I think I think integrate the lack of integration and the mechanisms to integrate can be a bit of a barrier when you're outside London. Now, Does that London require legislation week. to change that? I think some of it. Well, that's a good question, and that's some of the debates about uh, where devolution has got to. With what franchising has done because uh, that was a legislative change that has allowed greater authority uh, being this brought buses under public control effectively and that has given the greater mechanisms to to gm to use some levers to create an integrated network and i think when they launched the b network you can now both get a bus and a, a tram ticket on a map but you could that do before but it was it was it was done in a bit of a convoluted way right. so i think there are some legislative changes which are happening. I think there are some potentially other legislative changes as well, what could be done, but I don't have them right at hand now. A really good example is some of the trailblazer deals. It was announced this week they're going to actually start to trial tap on, tap off on railway stations in Greater yes, Manchester and Westmoreland. Yes, yes, I saw that. Yes. Amazing. And it's on one of the lines you've brought up on in Manchester. If you, people in London... They've been doing tap on, tap off between bus, tube, and train. Ten so, years, fifteen years, yeah. Exactly. Why is it taking so long to have a trial first, just to do that? I think it's about seventy-five stations in the West Mids. Uh, I can't remember the exact number in GM. Why is it taking so long to do that in GM? Now, good thing is 
we're moving in the right direction. But I do believe, coming back to your original question, the barriers to be able to move seamlessly between different modes and to integrate different modes and the levers, I think, have have been one of the reasons why sometimes people may have gone to the car first rather than public transport. And I think devolution and giving local elected politicians and the mayors some of the the powers to change this, like Andy Street and Andy Burnham, it can only be a good thing in my view. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about is is uh, cycling and walking. And indeed, one of the big controversies in uh, many areas, low traffic neighbourhoods. I wonder if uh, UTG has a position on that and whether you're supporting those sort of initiatives, um, uh, given the, the kind of controversy over them. So, shockingly, I'm, I also ride a bike. I mean, who right. just thought yeah. it? Uh, I have an e-bike as well, so because I'm getting a bit old and I need that little bit of help on the You're a lot younger hills. than me, and uh, I'm still oh. on the old-fashioned bikes, but there we are. You, you're, you're maybe it's hillier in Manchester. Up to Rochdale and Oldham, I'll, I'll right. put it on a little bit of assistance mode, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> uh, and LTNs is an interesting one. I recently moved house, <laughs> and uh, I went, I actually, without knowing, moved on to an LTN. A low traffic yeah, neighborhood, right? Low That's I was me using the jargon there, but yes, yeah. And and, and so what? And what? What was that? What, what was your feeling about that? Do you know what? I moved from where I moved from another area. It was a it was a new build housing estate. And um, what struck me was that, and this is only a very personal experience, and it won't be like this everywhere. People now walk. People use the shared space of pavements and roads as one space now. Right. Uh, kids will walk down the road. Uh, they'll go to, and I'm, I'm not saying it, 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 I can't say if it's encouraged cycling or not, but it feels like it's a much better, safer shared space. Still, cars come down, I drive down, everyone has a car on the street virtually. Right. But what it has done, it's removed that sort of anxiety about having a shared space and cars coming through for the rat run and stuff like that. And it, it seems to work well, but I have no comparative what it was like before. Right. So it's easy for me to just say it's. It seems pretty nice. But, but do you see this as an important way of improving the urban realm? I think it. I do think it's a good way of helping improve how people move in in our local and urban areas, definitely. But I think there is also, and 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 this is the check and balance. And I know we I wrote something, I think, in one of my first articles about LTNs as well, about low traffic neighbourhoods. Ultimately, it should be down to local people and to have the decisions. And there should be that accountability of, is it delivering what it is intended to do, ultimately? But isn't there an issue there that uh, often when these sort of measures are proposed, there's kind of, you know, Mr. Angry gets up at the local meetings and, uh, you know, they have protests and whatever. And actually, when they when they introduce them, people find, oh, actually, this is a much better way of, of living, as you're suggesting in your in the, in the new place you just moved to. Indeed. But then if it feels that, but then that's where the trouble is. And I think if it feels that actually isn't delivering the outcomes, it's important on local authorities right. to make sure that it is delivering the outcomes it would intend it to do. So for me, uh, and, and then in the broader sense of cycling um, and uh, and walking, I mean, we sh- we've got to get walking uh, and wheeling as some of the easiest things you can do in terms of, getting around and, and, and moving around spaces and and I think it feels like so much progress has been made 
in London uh, around active travel. Uh, and it's great to see some of our cities, some of our members pushing that agenda in active travel as well and encouraging it. And I think where we, for me, I use the bike, I don't use it as commuting, I use it as leisure. And I'm right. quite lucky to be afforded of canal routes around Greater Manchester and stuff like that, uh, as well as some of the cycle routes. So ultimately, it's going to be part of an overall mix of transport. But I think, uh, and that's good, uh, and it's the easiest and most simplest form of transport that we can do. Right, ultimately. I like you. You've given a, a new name for it: walking and wheeling. I, I think that's a that's a a, a good alliteration that um, I, I might well use. Okay, so uh, just a, a last question: if you, if you had mm. one demand for the new government, one demand, one key demand when they get into power, what will that be? I think ultimately, whether you're a transport authority, whether you're an operator, whether you're an investor, whether you're a user, we need clarity and certainty. Right. That's what we need from a future government. Clarity allows the ability to plan. Certainty allows provides the ability to invest. And I would hope that whoever wins the election, and I, I don't believe it's a foregone conclusion by any stretch of the imagination that greater clarity and certainty would really help our members and our partners in helping delivering public transport. Okay, excellent way to end it, Jason. Uh, uh, thank you very much for uh, giving up your time and uh, I look forward to seeing progress uh, in your organisation and seeing um, uh, progress indeed on the ground uh, in the in, in for the members that you represent so uh, thank you very much and um, I'm sure we'll come back to you at a future date uh, uh, maybe after the election so thank you Great. here's Christian's final thought from the departure lounge well there's been a lot of fuss about the fact that uh, Transport for London has hit upon half a dozen new names for the various bits of the London overground which uh, until now has just been orange on the tube map and rather confusing because really they're kind of a series of very different lines such as one that runs between Watford Junction and Euston another that runs between Romford and Upminster and the Gospel Oak to Barking one so uh, I think it's a great idea that they've decided to give these uh, individual names now there's been a fuss and there's criticism in the right-wing papers about it being woke, a word that I think is most overused and nobody really knows what it means, but it essentially means it sounds a bit left-wing or a bit uh, politically correct and we don't like it uh, if we're the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph. Uh, but, you know, this is a very necessary process. And yes, it costs £6 million, but the key is that it's a fantastic marketing exercise. Think of the amount of people who've now heard of these lines that might not have heard about them before and that might start using them as a result. Now, I have some issues about the particular uh, names. I think some of them are excellent, like Weaver uh, is uh, for the line between Liverpool Street and Enfield and Chessant and whatever. I think that's excellent and kind of historic roots. I like Windrush. Um, again, that does cover some areas with quite heavy uh, black uh, immigration. Uh, people from the wind rush, so I think that's kind of absolutely 
fair. Lioness is fun because it goes to to uh, Wembley. Mild May actually reflects uh, the name of a hospital that treated uh, people with AIDS in the early days. And again, I think that's an interesting piece of history. I, I take some issue with suffragettes. It's such a mouthful. And, and I, I think I, I might have preferred it to have been called Pankhurst or by some other famous suffragette. And also, that line actually did have a perfectly good name, which was Goblin. It was the gospel oat to Barkin line and had long been known as Goblin. Um, and so maybe that one is you know, a bit uh, tendentious. And the last one is called Liberty, which runs between all of Romford and Upminster, and that is rather strange. Uh, and apparently it's because Havering, where it is, uh, was uh, a place where there was a lot of uh, demonstrations for independence or whatever, right? the independent republic of, of Havering. But overall, I think this is this is a great name, a subject of debate, will bring people into using these names and also uh, makes the tube map much easier to follow because um, these have all got their own colours. They, they couldn't invent new colours, so they've got colours with a white line in the middle to uh, differentiate themselves from the tube lines. Calling All Stations, the transport podcast with Christian Walmart is produced by Cogitamus Limited, a leading provider of public affairs consultancy services in the sector. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do also follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at All Stations Pod.